You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Father, thank you that we could gather. Thank you that we could gather to receive what you have for us. May our spirits be attentive to your Holy Spirit. And would you speak in ways that are undeniable, convicting us, challenging us, comforting us. And we will give you all praise and thanks for the ways that you work in, through, and amongst us today. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're week four in a sermon series called After Life where we are walking through what it is that Christians have believed since the beginning about what happens after life, what God's word teaches us. It is a mystery. We have lots of questions. Our society says lots of things about what it is. My family just watched the new Haunted Mansion last night, and there's all kinds of theology in there (laughs) about what happens with souls and ghosts and different dimensions. Our society wants to fill in the blanks. God's word tells us some things. There's a lot of mystery involved, and we've been walking. This is week four. We'll wrap up week five with All Saints Day next week. But today is Q&A Sunday. We've never done a Q&A Sunday. So if you hate it, let me know. We'll never do it again. <laughs> if you love it, Maybe we'll do more often. And if you have any questions, we have nine questions that we're going to walk through today that you all have sent in over the last three weeks, four weeks. Uh, We're going to take some of those questions and kind of walk through what God's Word says. And if you have questions, feel free to send them to this number at any point. We'll do our best if we have time to answer them. That number is going to be down here on most slides, also in your bulletin. But here's what we've been talking about. Week one. Week one, we talked about how a lot of this is mystery. A lot of this we just can't know. A lot of this is faith. And so we need to be willing to hold the, the mystery, the tension. There's going to be a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, who are going to want to speak into the gaps and try to tell you the missing pieces. And I'm here to tell you that we should do our best to let mystery be mystery with a lot of things. We don't like mystery, but it's good for us. And we should allow that to be uh, what, we should allow God's work to say what it wants to say and not need to ask a bunch of questions of it that it's unwilling to answer. We talked about how there is heaven for those of us who pass on before Jesus returns. We call it heaven. Sometimes the Bible calls it paradise. This is a, a body asleep, soul awake with Christ existence. And we talked about how The Bible's main emphasis is on preparation, not speculation. How we are meant to be preparing ourselves for that afterlife uh, more than speculating about it. Week two. Oh, I keep saying week two, but I had a diagram for you. This is what the Bible teaches, basically, as best as we can understand about what happens after we die. There is a place where everybody goes, and in the Hebrew, it's called Sheol, and in the Greek, it's called Hades, and I know you've heard the term Hades. It's just the place of the dead. There's no punishment here. There's no fire here. This is where everyone goes, and within that, 
there's a place called paradise, or Paul calls it with Christ. And those who are in Christ and with Christ get to spend their time there with the angels and archangels and all the saints that have gone before and even Jesus himself. This is what Christians have believed. And then everything changes when Jesus shows up. This is Jesus returning. When Jesus returns, which Christians believe, things start to change because Jesus is going to take all of it and he's going to make new creation and resurrection. This is what Christians have believed from the beginning and our scriptures teach us. That Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, every human that's ever existed and the ones that are alive are going to be resurrected, get new bodies that are imperishable, unfading, uh, unspoiling. And Jesus is going to enter into a time of judgment upon the earth and upon us. This is what we believe. This is what we've confessed. This is what we read. That there is a place called hell. Jesus talks about it in a myriad of different ways. We said last week that maybe we should think of it more as separation. Because there's different words that Jesus uses. Sometimes he calls it outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes he calls it this thing called Gehenna, which is just a valley just outside of where he was walking around. Uh, I made the joke that it would be like if I said Palermo, right? It was like we're all going, people who don't love their neighbor are going to Palermo. This is what Jesus says most often. He points to a valley called Gehenna, the Gehenna Valley. And he's like, people who don't love their neighbor are going to be over there. And then he's going to move all of creation into what we know as new creation. We read about this in Revelation 21. And I encourage us to be people who live into that now. It's not something we wait for, but it's infecting and invading our culture and world right now. Next week, All Saints Day, Candy Palooza today, Q&A Sunday. I organized the nine questions that we have along our timeline that we just kind of walked through, but let's do the timeline one more time, and then we'll get into those questions. This is what we believe the timeline is based on our scriptures and what Christians have believed. I'm not saying anything new. In fact, I'm trying to say less than what we believe as a culture because this is what I believe God's word teaches most fully, that you are alive right now and that you will be dead sooner than you think, probably. That's the, it's always the caveat. And the probably is if Jesus returns before you die, then you don't die. But if he doesn't return, then you die. That's what we believe. Good luck, Godspeed. Let's all pray that he shows up. If I could miss out on that, that'd be great. Definitely Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, he, he changes everything. And when he changes the world, we call that new creation. And when he changes our bodies, we call that resurrection. But it's all really the same process. And then uh, we move into judgment, and then from judgment, we get to go to our eternal rewards or our eternal separation, depending on how Jesus judges us fit for each one of those. This is what the timeline of events is. And if you die before Christ returns, you get to spend that time with Christ in paradise. So nine questions, nine questions, nine questions for today. And they go in this order. This is the order we're kind of walking in. Appreciate those who've sent questions. If you have more questions, feel free to send them. Somebody asked, does the church have anything to say about burial or cremation? See, dying. This is first. This is a great question right at the top. Does the church have anything to say about burial versus cremation? Great question. These are some great questions for us. Let me wade into it as best we can. 
uh, for the long, I'm going to tell you maybe about three or four different uh, branches of churches, Christian churches, and what they say. Uh, thank you for asking it, whoever asked that. First of all, the Catholic Church was against it for a very long time. They were against a lot of things for a very long time, though, so... For a very long time, they were against cremation. When I say it, I meant cremation, and they prefer burial, and they still prefer burial, but they've allowed it since about 1997. And, um, but one thing that you're going to find throughout most of these churches is that they still encourage the burial of the ashes, the remains. And so uh, this is something that most Christians have encouraged, uh, even with uh, allowing cremation. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the other half of the old church, forbids it immediately. You just can't do it. And so Catholic, it says, okay. Eastern Orthodox says, absolutely not. Evangelicals, this is the National Association of Evangelicals. They did a poll of evangelical leaders, and they prefer traditional burial, but you're more than welcome to make your own decisions with that. Same with the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church out of England. They prefer burial, but you can make your own decisions with that. And they prefer that anyone who gets cremated uh, is still buried. Or sometimes, I think I have a list of the beliefs. Eastern Orthodox forbids most Christian history. It was forbidden. Now it's discouraged. Burial is preferred. Why discouraged? Why was it discouraged? Because back then it felt like it was a denial of that truth of the resurrection that we talked about. That being buried, they felt like, was more in line with the idea that our bodies would be raised someday into new creation. And also there was a belief in Christianity called Gnosticism that said physical stuff is bad and spiritual stuff is good. And so some people thought that that uh, cremation activity was a form of Gnosticism. They've given up on all that. You have a lot of freedom here. I'm just telling you the history. They want you to affirm the hope of the resurrection. They want our deaths to display our hope. And the reason they all encourage burial, even if you are cremated, is because we bury treasure. This isn't something that we're shedding. This isn't something that's bad. The church says our bodies and creation is good. And we bury treasure. So most Christians allow cremation, but they encourage burial. There's a whole other thing called a columbarium where you put cremains of folks who have been cremated. Great question. If you have any more questions about that, feel free to send them to me. Another question, question number two. How do we talk to children about this? How do we talk to children? This person says, my granddaughter asked me what we talk about when it comes to afterlife, and I was surprised that she was thinking about it. This is my daughter holding her chicken, and then some raccoons ate all our chickens. We did not cremate our chickens. <laughs> I buried them, but digging a hole is about the hardest thing you can do. I don't know if you know that. You think you're just going to wander out there with a shovel and dig a hole, and it's very difficult. So it was a pretty shallow grave for these. I wasn't going to mention about cremation and burial, that I'm going to be buried. I'm gonna be, I think that that's something that I'm going to do, but there is a lot of freedom in that. So I tried to bury these chickens before my kids could get home and see the bloodbath of... And there's a moment where you're like, do we eat them? <laughs> but then, then we get rabies or something. I have no idea what happens. 
And so this is our big, uh, this is our big moment of death in our family. It was our first kind of exposure to this, where my kids were aware. And so I brought them home, and we went and we buried those chickens, and they had a lot of questions. And so I told my kids what I'm telling you, and here's basically how I broke it down. I said, when people die, it's a body asleep, spirit awake with Jesus situation. And this is how the Christians talked about it. And we inherited the sleep language from Jesus. Jesus is the one who uses the sleep language. There's a, there's a little girl who's dead, and Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And this is supposed to overwhelm us with the idea that Jesus is so full of life that raising someone from the dead is like rousing someone from the sleep. He says it's about his friend Lazarus, his best friend in the whole world, died, and he says Lazarus is sleeping, and we must go wake him up. We've inherited this from Jesus, and Christians have used that language ever since, that when saints die, we say they've fallen asleep in the Lord. We named our cemeteries after these are sleeping places, is what cemetery means. And our spirits are awake with Jesus. And this is what I taught my kids. And then I taught them someday Jesus is going to come back and we're going to get new bodies and it's going to be like superheroes. That's what I told them. <laughs> because we get the same kind of body that Jesus got after Easter. And he walked through walls, and he flew, and he was able to disguise himself, and he went really fast, and he ate, and people touched him. It's a body that does superpower stuff. And that's what the Bible tells us is the same thing that happened to Jesus. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. It's the same thing that's going to happen to us. And so my kids were thrilled. I still think about it in this way. I'm like, I can't wait to fly. I really do, and, and this is not biblical. This is James Lackey. I really do believe one of our reasons we have a fascination with superheroes is because there's something in us about that. My wife has dreams about flying all the time, and I think there's something about this that is just ingrained. This is what we were supposed to be like. This is what we will be like when Jesus returns. So that's how I explain it to my kids. Body asleep, spirit awake, Jesus returns. We're basically superheroes without the kryptonite. Question number three. Somebody asked, if you don't choose to follow Jesus in this life, do you still enter into that paradise, that intermediate, restful space? Great question. And our answer is no, we don't think they do. Jesus tells us a bunch of parables and teaching around this. Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. And once the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door. And there will be weeping and there will be gnashing or grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in God's kingdom. And you yourselves will be thrown out. Jesus has a very strict teaching about this uh, topic. And he's always encouraging ourselves to prepare for paradise and to avoid the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the church has long since said that if you are not with Christ in life, then it will be hard for us to determine whether or not you are with Christ in death. Great question. Somebody had a very scientific question, and I thought it was interesting. If you don't think it's interesting, 
Tune out for the next two minutes. Are places outside of earth subject to the same time as earth time? Are they outside of time? Does time here equate to time there? I think what this person's asking, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. It's a great question if I'm right about what you mean. If I'm wrong about what you mean, then maybe it's a great question. I can't. Does the whole universe experience new creation when Jesus returns to earth? That's what I think this person's asking. And the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> and the long answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but if I, if I were making a guess, based on what we read in God's word, I would say yes. Yes, when Jesus returns, it's universal event. It's universe-wide event, taking everything into new creation. Take, I'm just, there's a lot of new creation language we could use. Again, I've, I've been using Revelation 21. But let's go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah. Isaiah writes about God and from God. He says, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that I'm making will endure before me. When we see the word heavens, we often think of what we think of when we mean heaven, where God lives. This word here is about space, the cosmos. And so there's something special about earth, at least in our regard, and our scripture tells us that God's footstool is here. And in Revelation 21, it says that God is going to make his home here amongst us. And God said he's making all the heavens, all the cosmos, and all of earth uh, new. And it will endure before him. That's my best guess. I would say yes. I have no idea. If we get there and God's like, no, it was different, I'd be like, okay, I was wrong. You can hold me to that. That's my... But based on the scripture that has been revealed to us, I would say yes. It's very earth-centric uh, religion we have here. God thinks very highly of us. Next question, did Paul and the early Christians think Jesus was coming back within their lifetime? Another great question. Did they think Jesus was returning immediately? Let me tell you, the scholars are divided. The scholars are always divided. That's how you get into scholarship. Is you start picking fights with things that everybody else believed. And so, but this idea, there's a, the, the debate is between did they believe in the imminent return, imminent turns, like was Jesus coming back right away, or did they hope for it? And those can be two different things. Did they think it was going to happen, or were they hoping it was going to happen? Let me give you some, a few scripture. So, uh, one of the main arguments is that maybe early on in St. Paul's life, he did believe Jesus was going to return sooner than Jesus has. And then at the end of his life, as he approached death, he started talking about death more than Jesus' return. So in 1 Thessalonians, not these, 1 Thessalonians 4, twice in a row, he says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we who are alive, who are left, he talks about being alive and Jesus' is coming. And so sometimes people think maybe he believes Jesus is coming. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. And so some scholars read that he thinks he is going to be here when Jesus shows up. But later in his life, he says, 
We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. So 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, when Jesus shows up, we might not all die. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, man, it'd be good to be with the Lord and away from the body. Or in Philippians 1, he says, living is Christ and dying is gain. I do not know which one I prefer, living or dying. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And he goes on to say, but I have to stay because you need me. I wish you would let me go. <laughs> you guys are so messed up as a church that I got to hang out and try to correct some. I'd rather go be with Christ, but he's keeping me here to make sure that you all get back in line. And so in the beginning, he talks about Christ coming, and at the end, he talks about dying. And so maybe there was a belief that they thought Jesus was coming soon, or maybe it was just a hope. Either way, if it's a hope, it's a hope that we should all share and rejoice in, Scripture tells us, in Christ's return. Great question. Somebody asked, because we talked about with judgment, Jesus mentioned words. So somebody asked about useless words. They said, so should we hold our tongue more often if we want to be more righteous? Great question. The short answer is yes. Yeah. I know. I'm a talker. This is my whole job. All I do is talk. I dig my own grave every time. Because Jesus said, this is where they're getting it from. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. A bunch more scripture for us just to encourage quietness. 1 Thessalonians 4 again says, aspire to live quietly. These are such a challenge for me. Every holy person I've ever read, and I've read a lot of these mystics and holy people, they say the best thing you can do is get quiet and be alone. And those are the two things I hate the most in the whole world. <laughs> quiet and alone. Silence and solitude are good for the soul. And I was like, boo. Give me something else. Lead a quiet and peaceable life from 1 Timothy 2. The book of James says, be slow to speak, quick to listen. And then James has a whole chapter, chapter 3, about wisdom and tongue and speaking. And he says, the tongue is a fire and no one can tame the tongue except with Christ's help. And so, yeah, is there an encouragement to be more quiet, to be more righteous? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And so... And, and Jesus makes that a qualification for judgment. He's going to judge us based on every careless word we've done. Great question. Thank you so much. After I shared about my testimony with Mr. Toad's wild ride, about how I got scared of hell, literally Disney scared the hell out of me, encouraged me towards Christ, somebody wrote, it's not even a question. Just, I never heard you talk about that. And I have the same exact situation. And so if you don't remember, we were talking about hell and our culture's idea of hell. And I went to Disneyland when I was five. My grandparents took me. And I went to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And it was all next to the little kids' rides, Dumbo and Peter Pan and Snow White. And you're like, this is going to be great. And then, you, then, it, and then it, I, lit I literally thought my last moments were before <laughs> me. 
when this train comes speeding at me, I genuinely thought it was a train. I genuinely thought I was going to die. And then after you get run over by the train, you go to hell. I think because he was speeding. I think, <laughs> I think his crime was speeding. I can't remember what his crime was. Reckless driving. In the Toad Wild, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride universe, you deserve hell for speeding. Scared. I scared me immensely, and I'm glad other people have had that experience. Thank you for making me not feel alone, for making me feel seen and heard in that. I appreciate that. Two more questions. Harder questions. We talked about how we are agents of reconciliation, and Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And somebody said, if all things are being reconciled by Christ, how do we then reconcile the notion of hell and separation into that? That's a great question. Because the Bible has this very big language about how what Jesus is doing affects everything, and also there's a place called hell or separation or Gehenna or outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth or lake and fire or whatever language you prefer. And so here's a couple verses that kind of talk about the bigness of what Jesus has done. I'm wrapping up. It says, all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Doesn't that sound like all? Sounds like all, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2 says. The last one says, in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Again, 2 Corinthians 5. This is some very big language. So where does hell fit into this if Jesus is doing these things for all? There's a belief that was in the church called universalism. Universalism means everybody gets to go to heaven slash new creation, that all will be saved. Uh, I'll tell you that some ancient Christians believed this, but by and large, the church said, we don't believe this because Jesus talks about a place of separation, of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So very smart Christians affirmed universalism, but the whole church got together and said, no, 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 no. It doesn't make sense of what Jesus talks about. So how do we make sense of it? How do we make sense of Christ's universal work and this idea of separation in hell? Here's how we do it. Here's how I do it. Take it or leave it. That all of creation will be made new in Christ. We know that's true. That every human, good, bad, dead, alive, will be resurrected in Christ. We know that's true. And that those who don't want to live with, for, and in Christ, there's another place for them. Separation. That God and God's goodness gives you what you choose. And if you choose an existence and an eternity without God, then God has a place for you on the outside. It's not good. He doesn't want that for you. But that there is a place. In your resurrection, in your resurrected body, there's a place for you that if you don't want to live with God, then you don't have to live with God. I think about my own kids. There is literally nothing they could do to make me love them less. But we can have a life of separation if they want that, if they choose that, right? Someday, if they choose that they don't want to be in relationship with me, I would be sad. I would be heartbroken. I would not enjoy that at all. But I would respect their decision 
And so I think that that is similar to the way that God figures this out. That you're going to get a resurrected body whether you want to or not, against your will. You cannot consent to that. God is going to give you resurrection and you will have an imperishable body that does not rot, spoil, or fade. But if you don't want to live with God, he's got a place for you. Out of his love, God gives us the desires of our heart. And if the desires of our heart is not God, then there's a place where God is not. That's how we make sense of it. That's how I make sense of it. Take it or leave it. Last one. Why does any of this matter? And then I'm wrapping it up. Great question. Why does any of this matter? Are we, what, what about just now? Like, aren't we supposed to just be kind now? Yes, we talked about that. Please be kind now. Peter writes a little bit about this. He says, you've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is guarded by God's power so that you can receive salvation when he's ready to reveal it in the last time. You now rejoice in that hope even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. There's something about this end stuff, this afterlife stuff, that is supposed to help us right now. And Christians call this hope. And we know the word hope, but in our culture and society, we think about it as optimism. Like everything's just going to be fine, right? Like I'm, I'm hopeful that that thing's going to happen. Christian hope is this stuff, that we will be with Christ, and Christ will be with us, and that he's making all things new. That's hope. That is hope. There's not another version of Christian hope that's optimism. The Christian hope is that this stuff is true, and that should help you now. That should help us endure hard things now, and that should give us our mission and marching orders on what we're supposed to do right now. A couple things I'm wrapping up. We know that bad theology of the end leads to bad living. If you have a bad concept of what we're all heading towards, you're not going to live rightly right now. Give you an example. It's a little controversial. I'm not anti-cars. I have cars. I told you I don't like them. But, I, but there was a pastor that once said, my screen's all messed up. I'm going to let Titus fix that for me. Jesus is coming back. He's going to burn it all up. So yeah, I drive an SUV. That's what he said. Again, I'm not anti-SUV. Have your SUV. But the idea that we're all just leaving this space rock someday and we're going to live in some disembodied, that's not at all what Scripture teaches us. You're not supposed to just destroy it because you think you're leaving it or it's not important or God doesn't care about it. You are supposed to love your neighbor because your neighbor is an immortal being that's going to live forever, right? And so your concept of the end is wildly important because it tells us where to go. This is my theology professor from seminary, and he said, a church without a healthy end times idea quickly falls into self-help teaching and how to muddle through life. And we just have more to do than that. We have more to do than just to help you get a little bit better and to help you kind of figure out how to walk through life a little bit easier. We're trying to raise people from the dead. We're trying to get them into a new creation, resurrection of righteousness. We're not just trying to figure out how to feel a little bit better to become a marginally better human being. We're trying to become new creation. So we need to know the goal of our faith. 
Because if you don't know the goal, then you don't know the way. You won't know the steps. And so there's a vast difference between we're leaving this physical earth for a spiritual heaven versus God is coming and making all things new and making all bodies new and imperishable and unspoiling and unfading. Those are two completely different missions. And God has asked you to participate in the second one. God calls God's creation good. He calls your bodies good. And he wants to redeem those and restore those. It shapes how we do everything and anything because we believe that God is healing and redeeming and restoring all things. In fact, the Christian